Well, hey there, it's Angus Gill here, and welcome to episode two of My Origins. If this is your first time tuning into the podcast, I'm chatting with a very special guest each week, flicking through the pages of their past and uncovering the genesis, the catalyst, the origins of their story, and looking at how their origins have made them the person they are today. This podcast is inspired by a song of mine, Origins, which is appearing on my brand new album, Welcome to My Heart, which comes out on Friday the 20th of September. So pre-order now over at iTunes. I'm joined by country music legend, my mate Graeme Connors. G'day, Graeme. How are you going? I'm good, Angus, and always good to catch up with you, and very excited to hear your new album is about to be released. It sure is, mate, and it was a lot of fun uh, writing uh, Don't Care How Long It Takes with you. I had to think for a second. <laughs> I'm, That's I'm... all right. You've got a lot of songs on your plate, but it was very enjoyable, and uh, it was good that you managed to take a trip to the to the north to, um, to spend a bit of time up here, and uh, I've had a bit of a, a – been very fortunate that – I've had several artists who found themselves in town and for various uh, reasons, whether it's just directly for writing or as part of tours. And so it's been a fairly creative first half of the year. Yeah. And you've been writing with our good mate Adam Harvey and Tom and Nick Wolf out of the Wolf Brothers and Jade Holland. and Yeah, we've had a great uh, creative burst. It's been lovely. I was thinking back the other day about the first time we met when I interviewed you for my radio program on 103.9 Two-Way FM in Warhope. I would have been about 14. I was very starstruck and nervous. Was that, was that two years ago or three? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Angus, I couldn't resist. Oh, mate, I think it was probably about eight years ago now, I reckon. That's right. Yeah. And there was something that you did when I called you up that no one else I interviewed had ever done, and that was you said my name when you answered the phone, and it immediately put me at ease. It, it, Angus Gill is a name that's easily memorable, so yeah, that's, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's it's good. good. Now, you said something in the interview about the fact that we all think we're so unique, but the truth is... We're not that different to everyone else from what we experience in our lives. I didn't fully understand it then, but I often think about it now when it comes to songwriting. Sometimes you think that you've got a detail in a song lyric that is too specific, only something that you get. But sometimes it's that specific detail that makes the song more universal. Absolutely. I I still hold to that theory or uh, practice, whichever way you want to view it. the, the more intimately a writer understands the subject matter, then I think the more universal it becomes in the outcome. I often think of your song, Watching Byron Raise the Flag, and in the opening line you say there's a flagpole in the front yard of a little fibro cottage in a quiet suburban back street here in my hometown. They're very specific details, but from the moment that I heard the song I thought... That's the guy down the end of the street. Yes, it's funny, isn't it? I I go back to Mark Twain as a as a as a writer. I found as a young person um, incredibly 
inspirational because his intimate knowledge of the Mississippi and the characters, uh, along with Henry Lawson, he was another that I thought really nailed the miniature, you know what I mean, like the, the little things in life that are so unique and yet so universal. Um, and uh, it's keeping your antenna out, keeping your eyes alert to those simple um, but universal things that I think assists you as a writer. I like to compare songwriting to observational stand-up comedy, which I do a little bit of in my shows, but observational comedy, you're looking at those little details that people notice but they don't spend hours obsessing over and you're kind of bringing that to light. And we do the same thing in songwriting, picking up on those little details and hoping that people will relate. Absolutely. We, I was just at a function, of, a charity function of the day, and Dave Hughes, the Australian comedian. Oh, yeah, Dave Hughes. A very funny man, very funny man. And his observations and his humour is really built upon that sort of nitty-gritty and and you do relate it to your own life. There's so much that... Um, you look at and think, my goodness, that's me. If not me, then that's someone I know really well and that's what's happened to them as well. So, yeah, comedy's great. Comedy's a good – I mean, one of my favourite songwriters, a lot of people have forgotten, Shel Silverstein. Shel Silverstein wrote incredibly funny songs like – A Boy Named Sue. Yes, that's right, The Three-Legged Man. Um, He was just – uh, a fabulous um, wordsmith painter of you know like images in his in his songs, and he he always had a wry smile. Whatever he did, there was always that sense of isn't life wonderful and isn't life worth you know not taking too seriously. One of your big influences and someone that's influenced me. A great deal is John Prine. He's really great for using wry humour. Absolutely. In uh, serious and non-serious contexts. And look, there are good writing is timeless, and it it um, there are a lot of high points. You know, you sort of you look at someone like John Prine, and over a, a long career. There are so many songs where you can draw a straight line and say, oh, my goodness, that's that's sort of the same characters that he's brushed up against. And it's, yep, yeah, I love, I love, you know, I love songs. And songs to me are a, a modern literature uh, in the way that short stories um, were in, in another century. Um, and... And they fill a gap between serious poetry, which can sometimes be very um, obtuse, very difficult to to understand because it, it has so many 
references and then modern folk which is you know um the the, the line that comes from Banjo Patterson, I mean Australian folk at least, uh, Banjo Patterson and Henry Lawson. Um, so songwriting, I think, is a is a very uh, wonderful, timeless, and valuable part of the human experience. I was chatting with James Blundell last week, and you guys both share this in common. You both haven't strayed far from where you were brought up, with the exception of touring the world, have you? Well. Once again, it goes back to just go back to Mark Twain, an intimate knowledge of a of a community and a, a landscape that is if you keep digging deeper, um, you find something new all the time. and um, i'm 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 a part of a community. I'm very much. In my community, I'm known as the guy that writes songs about us. <laughs> you know what I mean? And in as much as there's the accountant and there's the lawyer and there's all that sort of stuff, it's like that's what I do. And and as a community, and I try and encourage young songwriters when they say to you, "How do I do this? You know, how do I make a livelihood? How do I create a career?" And I say, you know. Uh, stay where you are. Yeah, stay where you are. There you go. It's straight from the new album. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely one that I resonate with. Um, I've been wanting to ask you, do you have a memory of one distinct family home or did you move around a little bit when you were growing up? No, we were very much one, uh, 2A Scanlon Street. <laughs> and uh, and that was uh, that was home. And then... When I turned 17, I just couldn't wait to escape from, you know, my little town. And it wasn't until I left that I realised the the gift of understanding community and the characters and the love that you uh, you, you receive, all those sorts of things. And when I... You know, I had a period, like all of us do, of finding, you know, chasing the dream, and that led me to Sydney. When North came out, which was an extremely clear um, album about a part of the world that I knew and understood, I also realised that I wanted to go back and re-experience that, and that led to a a full return of the circle, you know, and as you say, now next week we're heading for Ireland to do some shows. We're we're um, constantly touring around Australia, been to America and all those places. But you carry that part of you with you wherever you go, and you it's the prism through which you see the world. I know we've had this conversation a few times, but coming from a small town, uh, Warhope. There's something about the characters and the character of this town that really appeals to me. I've been known as well in my local community as the singer-songwriter guy, and I have at times contemplated about moving to Sydney or Brisbane, where I spend a lot of time, but there's something about being in those capital cities that makes you look forward to coming home to Warhope. 
there's something to be said about staying where you are and where you belong. And I feel very blessed to live in such a beautiful part of the world. Well, I know that you are an intrepid traveller in in the you know pursuance of your career, and that's a good thing because you need to take your music further afield. And I did all that in the '90s, where we we toured every town that had a um, you know a venue of, of a reasonable size and sometimes they were small sometimes large but we took our music to our audience and there's something wonderful and historic in the same way that slim dusty did that as his career uh, in the same way that um, john williamson um, has done that you know it's like a and the other day, I, I, Lee Kernigan was in town. I went and saw Lee's show. And I know that, that Lee has a, a very good understanding of regional Australia as well. He certainly does. Now, GC, this is the part of the podcast where we start digging a little bit deeper. I become sort of Australian Dr. Phil. And we talk about your upbringing and the relationship that you had with your parents. What were your parents like? What did they do? And how did you get on with them? Oh, gee, that's hard, isn't it? Um, I <laughs> let me sit on let me let me sit on the couch here now and and open up the uh, bear bear my soul. Um, my father was a, a, a working man. He was a, a guard in the railway, and he was part of a great community. Of of workers, they were, um, you know, uh, they all an honest day's labour for a fair day's pay. You know what I mean? It was that that was the the whole thing. And and my mother was she was a bit of a dreamer. She was a she had a, a more checkered life and a, a degree of sadness within that framework. And I think the combination of, you know, hard work will get you through and dream because dreams will take you somewhere uh, are the two characteristics that my parents uh, gave me and for which I'm forever grateful. Did you come from a very musical family? Were your parents musical or did they influence your musical taste at all? Well, my father um, was a shower singer, you know what I mean? Like he had a very fine uh, tenor voice but never would only would only do that in the safe confines of family and friends. <laughs> um, uh, and my mother was incredibly supportive of my musical ambitions, though not musical herself. She, in fact, was the one at my 13th birthday who, you know, took me down to Alex Music Store in Mackay to buy my first guitar, which was $17.50 Suzuki acoustic. <laughs> and uh, with Dad's blessing, of course, you know. Um, but that's the combination that, that – uh, and then once I had that – it was like, well, son, you've you've got the guitar now. Show us what you can do. And so, I was very much the product 
of I'd finish school, I'd come home, I'd pick up that guitar and I would play it. And then I would play it until dinner time. Then, of course, I'd be forced to do my homework, which was like, oh, <laughs> can't I just play guitar? But, um, yeah, it was uh, quite a simple, um, when you look, look back at it, it was very simple. It was like um, music. I was the, the odd one out in the family. They were very sporting, my brothers, um, where here I was. Um, uh, somehow or other music spoke to me, and and I – um, pursued that, and with the support that I had, um, to to find the future for yeah, myself. That's it. Well, I can actually relate a lot to that because I'm the same in my family. I'm kind of the musical oddball. Everyone else yep. um, has has been into different things, but uh, music skipped about two or three generations for me because my 103 year old great grandpa, who passed away a couple of years ago, he. Um, he played the mandolin, and I've got his mandolin hanging up in my studio here. And uh, you know, it's something that I'll I'll treasure forever because uh, you know that's lovely. Well, I have I have no historical precedence in terms of my family and music. Um, it seems like it was what called me, um, and uh, thankfully I was in a supportive environment to pursue it. When you're about nineteen, and correct me if I'm wrong. Chris Christopherson produced your first album, and when the morning comes, he he produced four tracks for it. I, right. I was very fortunate. Um, Alan Healy from Festival Records was the managing director of Festival Records, and he saw something in me. And along with people like Jim White and uh, Meryl Gross, they arranged for me to do the support act for uh, Chris Christopherson. And I was a huge fan of his music and I opened the show for him all the capital cities in Australia. And at the end of the tour, uh, he very generously, he and his band, which is comprised of people like Billy Swan and Jerry McGee and, of course, the wonderful Rita Coolidge, um, uh, Sammy Creason. These are all incredibly – Mike Utley, great musicians, Terry Paul on bass – um, they found a way to extend their stay in Australia and produced four songs for me for my first album, and When Morning Comes. It was a, it was a, it was a moment. It was a beautiful moment and a tribute to the generosity of spirit of someone like Chris Christopherson, who's coming out here on tour soon. To, um, to, uh, I just, uh, I often marvel that that um, someone of that stature um, had the capacity, generosity of spirit to assist someone at the very beginning of their career. Yeah, that's it. And uh, I actually have the, the very good fortune of, of opening a show for Chris on the Central Coast um, when he's, he's over here at the end of September, so I'm, I'm really excited Fabulous. about that. Um, well, what was he like to work with as a producer? Uh, he... In the very much in the American mould of production, uh, you just put you just get four really great songs, <laughs> and you get uh, a band of incredible musicians, and you put them all together, and you make a record, and and you trust the instincts of all the players. It's not about directing traffic; it's just about creating 
an environment in which um, people are comfortable to do what they do best. And, you know, that at the end of the day um, is probably when you look historically, most productions that create magic are those based on trust and collaborative effort as opposed to singular direction, you know what I mean? It's like, um, I mean, I, I often think, look at the Beatles and think four incredibly talented musicians. Now, obviously, Paul McCartney and John Lennon were the, were the writers and they, to a degree, would have had to have said, the song goes like this and I've got this idea. But, you know, the trust they would have had in their companions, musical companions, to to add to that and create the magic that it became is what it's all about. It's the whole collaborative and effort in creativity. I think a great part of the producer's role is to create a safe, comfortable environment for the artist to be able to come alive and make their best work and trust in the producer and the group of musicians that they're surrounded by. Well, I've been incredibly blessed working with people like uh, Mark McDuff and Matt Fell, who were people that um, I would come to with my songs and they would create an environment around me uh, to enable me to just uh, deliver my part of that uh, agreement, if you know what I mean, you know, so, so... my responsibility will always be and has always been to deliver the best possible song. I, I pride myself on ensuring that when I walk into the studio, what I have done does not need to be reworked. It's, it's ready to go. But having said that, the addition of these incredible musicians take it to another level. And, of course, you know, we all um, saddened by the, the loss of Glenn Hanna, who, who was an incredible uh, contributor to so many great records. Um, and, I mean, he, one amongst many, but, but uh, you know, what a great loss uh, for us all creatively uh, when someone of that, ability, gift, and generosity um, is no longer with us. Mm-hmm. He was a very special man indeed. and Absolutely. And, and I think the glue he, to so yeah. many different projects, you know, across the board. Well, I know that he and Matt had a very long and wonderful creative relationship and uh, and that is represented in my records and yours. To be honest, I'd give it all up if he was still here and try to do it again. But yeah, there you go. Yeah. I'd like to touch a little bit um, on your time working in the music publishing business um, because you famously got You're the Voice placed with John Farnham. And I'm interested to know how your experience as a music publisher influenced or informed your own work as a songwriter. It was vital. It was very, very important. Prior to that, I had a other side of the desk attitude. I guess I saw myself, the artist looks at the industry and sort of says, why aren't people taking notice of me? Um, when you get on 
the publishing side or the recording side, you understand there are a lot of people out there vying for it, for attention, excuse me. And um, it really was a case of I spent about four years working in music publishing and each day I would listen for hours and hours to various songs <clears throat> by established writers, by new writers. I got to hear hits before they were hits. I got to hear songs that were never going to be hits. I heard songs that had structural problems that you knew just didn't communicate the idea uh, effectively. So what a learning curve, what a great blessing to be able to have those 10,000 hours of listening in an environment like that. Um, and it wasn't a case, to be honest, of my decision being final in a sense it, in, in to, as a gatekeeper or anything like that. The songs that stood out just was so good, just so right, perfectly crafted and emotionally connected, and You're the Voice was just one of those. You know, it, it, um, it was a very simple story. Uh, Stuart Hornell from the London office of the publishing company I worked for, Rondor Music, came out and he delivered two 15-inch reels of tape with, with songs the second song on the first reel that I played was You're the Voice. And at the time, Ross Fraser, the producer for John Farnham, was seeking songs for that project that eventually became Whispering Jack. And when I heard You're the Voice, sung by Chris Thompson, it was written by four writers, Maggie Ryder, Keith Reed, Andy Kunter and Chris Thompson. And Chris's voice was in the same stratosphere as uh, John Farnham's, you know, like just one of those incredible, uh, no unlimited range. And uh, when I heard the demo, I very uh, dutifully burnt a cassette or, you know, dubbed off a cassette and sent it down to uh, Ross Fraser's office in Melbourne and within two days received a receipt saying, uh, please put this on hold. Uh, this is a song that we feel, uh, you know, that, John uh, would be perfect for John, and I guess the rest is history. So at the end of the day, all I was doing was my job. I'd I'd listened to so many songs that that it was flawless. It was just one of those songs that it perfect in construction, perfect in the message for the times, but most importantly, it was it found its way to a, an incredibly unique singer at a point in his career when he was loved by everybody, but he hadn't had a hit record for a while. And um, it's, uh, it's just fabulous that, that the song and the artist and, and um, the tiny part that I played um, is part of the history now of the Australian music industry. And you had a number of cuts as a songwriter for Slim Dusty. How did your relationship with Slim work, and did it involve a lot of selective writing? Initially, um, uh, Doug Trevor, uh, who produced a lot of country artists from Gina Jeffries right through, uh, uh, he'd come into Rondo Music looking for songs, and 
didn't have a lot of. Uh, 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 sorry, I backtrack a little. He came in looking for for other songs, but um, at the same time, Slim Dusty was looking for songs. And he said to me, "I hear Slim's looking for a trucking song, something with a trucking theme." And I contacted all our writers, and a lot of the writers were like, "Oh, no, I don't do trucking songs." Da 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 da. And I thought, well, Doug, what about you and I? So he said, "Let's do that." So we we. Uh, made an appointment to to spend some time in the studio and we came up with a song called I'm Married to My Bulldog Mac. Um, it was sort of a whimsical, fun look at truck driving and 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 the, the whole relationship with your vehicle. Um, that was sent across to Rod Coe and Rod responded pretty much immediately that Slim wanted to hold on it. He was considering doing it. Did we have anything else? So I went home that weekend and wrote Diesel in Dreams, which um, was a song that had a, very, a lot of personal connection, uh, but it was transferred from, as a kid, I used to travel with my dad on a Saturday afternoon, as did my brothers, um, on the rail motors. And so it was like, I was proud as punch, you know, my dad's the guard on the railway and I'm getting a free ride, you know, it was that sort of thing. And so Diesel in Dreams was about the relationship of a father and son. Then from there, that that also was accepted for the album Trucks on the Tracks. And from that point forward, Rod would ring me or eventually Slim would call me and just say, well, look, I'm making a record and this one I'm celebrating X number of years in the industry uh, and is there anything you'd like to write or is it, you know, and I'd say, well, what's going on? I remember this line, he said, well, where I am is where I want to be and I thought, there is the song title. So I dutifully wrote, you know, where I am is where I want to be and it was a great success. So we fast forward to say 1987 and the bicentennial was imminent and uh, Slim rang me and said, do you have anything up your sleeve that might be a song of celebration for the everyman for the bicentennial? I had this flash from years as a child at the football games. There was a guy called Louis Mazzotti. Every time his team, the Brothers Football Club, would score a try, he'd throw his hat in the air and yell out, you've done us proud, boys, you've done us proud. So I thought, we've done us proud to come this far down through the years to where we are. Side by side and hand in hand, we've lived and died for this great land, we've done us proud. And the song seriously wrote itself in 10 minutes uh, and 33 years. <laughs> so... So, yeah, um, and then, you know, Slim uh, and Rod uh, made an incredible recording of it with a full orchestra, and, and once again, the rest is history. Took 33 years to write that song, and it just kind of... Fell out in 10 minutes. That's yeah. it, that's it. When you're writing songs for a new album of your own material, you'll get up at 5am and start writing. 5.30, Angus. 5.30, oh, okay, it's a little bit later <laughs> give me, now. Give me half an hour, give me half an hour. <laughs> so why is that time such a critical part of your creative process? I think there's something in that dawning period where you carry 
the subconscious element of thought from sleep into the real world. Whenever I am on a, ru a run with, with songwriting, it's always worked that way. I don't, I don't have like a, a goal or a plan or like here's the song title. I just get up and start work. And whatever comes to mind, and it can be incredibly like where the hell is this going? Um, but essentially it is going somewhere. My subconscious mind has determined, um, you know, a course. That's the way it works. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you've got this beautiful grand piano in your living room. Um, is that predominantly where a song will start for you nowadays? I know the times that we've written, that's kind of been your go-to. Do you prefer writing on a piano over writing on a guitar? Well, to be honest, I don't think I write on – I don't really write with an instrument in mind. I generally get the idea of the song and I get maybe that would lead to a title or a melody or some fragment, and then I go to an instrument to work out what, what, what am I hearing in my head um, and what key is this in and all those sort of elements. I try and stay away from an instrument as a source of inspiration because I find that no matter, unless you're probably Tommy Emanuel or someone like that, um, when you pick up a guitar, you have a tendency to fall into patterns uh, of changes, uh, you know, like uh, chord changes, and which then in turn leads to melodic shifts and all these sorts of things. Whereas if you do it without an instrument, you have a good chance of creating something that doesn't sound like the last thing you did. It pushes you, pushes you forward somewhat, you know. That's a really interesting point because I think we all have those chord progressions or riffs which are our go-to as soon as we pick up an instrument. And I think that developing a song and taking it to an instrument after is a really great method of writing. It, it works for me and I suggest people try it. If it doesn't work, don't do it. But uh, it, it really is a case of... It frees me up. Somehow or other, I don't have the thing of going from one to four to five to one, you know what I mean, or, or one to six minor to, to four to five. You, you do have – and you get extended lines in your melody. So you have the lyric and the idea of the song um, has a tendency to determine a new course or an, an original course, whereas – you know, it's otherwise it becomes a chord change every two bars. You know, <laughs> it's like so. So sometimes you hang on. Pacifica is a classic example of that, where it breaks into sort of like a, a, a seven-four bar. You know what I mean? Because the ly the lyrics and the melody just that's the way it fell, and it's not it's not a case of, you know, one, two, three, four, two, two, three, four. It becomes one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one. You know, it's, it's a strange, strange rhythmic scansion. Final question. Who are you reading at the moment? At the moment, 
you're not going to believe this. I just bought Ellen Caswell's <laughs> book, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> The Truth. I think it is my version of the truth. So I'm about to head off to Ireland and I will throw that in my bag as uh, a, my reading for the, um, for, for the trip. And the other one that I have been dipping in and out of over the last period of time is a book I bought some time ago, and it's a massive tome called The Macquarie Pen Anthology of Australian Literature. And it is uh, – it's not a book that you, you can read, you know, like – in one sitting, it's like you dip in, dip out, and it's got great poetry, it's got short stories, it's got uh, snippets from larger uh, novels. Uh, and so that's – they're the two that I think of immediately. Um, I'm also a very avid reader of uh, uh, Latham's Quarterly, which is a magazine from America, which is actually in a funny sort of way, a, a sort of encyclopedic, encyclopedic sort of compendium over various ideas. He takes a, an idea like, um, uh, let's say, fear, and then every writing in that magazine is some way linked over time, and it can go right back to Egyptian history right through to the modern day, and it would be something linked with fear. And it might be um, arts and letters or medicine, or it can be uh, Eros, which is a really, really interesting volume. Um, time, youth, disaster, you know what I mean? So it's like flesh. I mean, you know that it's like there's challenging reading here. So what you're doing is a condensed magazine of a you know probably 180 to 200 pages of human thought uh, about that topic uh, since the dawn of literate man. So they're the sort of things that I really find stimulating um, as a writer. Uh, so. And I also, I'm a, I'm a great, well, I'm a student of great literature in as much as I try and I try to understand the great writers of the past, the Swifts and Stearns and Melville, Tolstoy, you know, Dostoevsky. A lot of that stuff, even at my age, I find is still a little beyond me. So I. I might every couple of years I might revisit um, or American playwrights. I'm very very keen on uh, particularly American playwrights because they seem to have cornered a, a wonderful vision over the last hundred years or so um, of the whole. And and I suppose too, it's available as a literature, whereas we we don't have. You know, I've got some of the 17th Doll and some of the ones we have from Australia, but but there's we don't have a compendium, you know, like a, a group of plays that like they do in America. Anyhow, yeah, so reading, thinking, it's all part of this wonderful human experience and my advice to any budding writer is you cannot be a writer unless you're a reader. So 
That's exactly right. I was talking to James Blundell about that last week, and there's a book called On Writing yeah. by Stephen King, and that's right. one of his biggest points writers have got to read. And talking about the Alan Caswell book, I just finished that too, and I was on the phone to Caz the other day telling him how much I really enjoyed it. It's a brilliant read. Oh, well, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> You'll definitely enjoy it. And uh, have a great trip to Ireland, and thank you so much for chatting with me for the My Origins podcast. Because every time we catch up, I learn more in an hour with you than uh, I probably did in 13 years of mandatory education. So, <laughs> Well, that's lovely of you to say, Angus, but I, I'm also looking forward to somewhere between Brisbane and Abu Dhabi, I'll be finishing off the Alan Caswell, my version of the truth, and I'll be, I'll be, I'll be writing him a review. So I hope I really enjoy it. <laughs> I think you will, mate. Um, thank you for the chat. And for the support, you have been like a mentor to me, and I really do appreciate it. Well, your energy and enthusiasm and talent, um, uh, why, uh, that I, I, I take your call every single time. So good on you, Angus, and I wish you every success. That was episode two of the Brand New Origins podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being here. And please subscribe, tell your friends, tell your family, and we'll be back again next week for another episode. We'll see you then. My origins made me who I am.